came upon a Bosch machine gun crew of four men who had been killed. I remember one man had four bullets through his face and another was shot in the stomach. The former, having evidently died instantly, was lying on his right side, and the other, who had evidently lingered some time, had crawled up and put his arms around him. Who knows but what they might have been buddies. Captain Ashby Williams, 320th Infantry Regiment, 80th Division, AEF First Army, the Meuse Argonne, 26 September, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 54, Meuse Argonne, 26 September, 1918, part 3. AEF 3rd Corps and French 17th Corps. Some quick admin notes to start with. Many thanks to listener Clark for the generous donation. It is greatly appreciated, and it goes towards keeping this podcast up, available, and running. Big shout-out, too, to the BFWWP's newest patron on Patreon, Roland. Thank you so much. I'll save everyone the Patreon sales pitch this time, but I will say that Roland now has access to episodes at least 24 hours before their general release, as well as access to transcripts for each episode. So, www.patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast. Also, and I'm just as happy to say this information is already out of date, but the BFWWP hit 250 reviews on iTunes. That's nuts, man. Thank you to everyone who has given a starred review, and to everyone who has written a review, many thanks as well. Uh, Your reviews really help the Apple and iTunes algorithm gods notice this poor peasant of a podcast and get us to the point where the BFWWP will one day be a suggestion in Peter Jackson's podcast feed. And then, sky's wide open, folks. So, to the right flank of the AEF First Army on the Meuse Argonne. Last episode, we covered the actions and operations of the First Army's Fifth Corps, which was in the center. And today, we'll cover Third Corps. Led by Major General Robert L. Bullard, the 3rd Corps consisted of, from left to right, the 4th Ivy Division, the 80th Blue Ridge Division, and the 33rd Prairie Division. Of these three divisions, only the 80th was a completely green and untested unit. 3rd Corps' objectives that day were to push through the Meuse Valley and clear the area all the way up to Brieux-sur-Meuse, in doing this, the Corps would be supporting 5th Corps on their left by helping to clear the Barrois Plateau. 3rd Corps' left boundary was just east of Montfaucon and running north-south. To the right of the boundary was the 4th Ivy Division. The Ivy, nicknamed for the unit, 
came from a play on the Roman numeral four, which consists of a capital letter I and a capital V. The divisional symbol was and remains today four ivy leaves pointing in the four cardinal directions. And I bring this up mainly because back in my day, the joke was that the fourth ID symbol stood for four lieutenants pointing north. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that it was. But by September of 1918, 4th Division was a veteran regular army unit that had seen heavy combat at the end Marne back in July. There, the Ivy Division had taken 5,600 casualties, heavy losses even for a unit as large as an American division in World War I. The division was led by Major General John L. Hines, a man best described as taciturn. Fourth Division's objectives were to attack on a line running Malancourt to Betancourt with the intent of breaking through the German first and second positions. They were then to attack the German third position between the villages of Cunel and Brieux-sur-Meuse. All of this was to clear ground but also to assist with the neighboring 79th Division's assault on Montfaucon to their left. Recall, however, that in the last episode, we talked about how both the 79th and 4th Divisions had received the same orders from General John Pershing, but that both divisions had interpreted the orders differently. Major General Joseph Kuhn and his 79th Division staff had understood the orders to mean that 4th Division would be coming into their sector to help flank Montfaucon. Major General John Hines and his 4th Division understood that they were to help the 79th, but only as much as they could within their own 4th Division sector. They were not to go out of bounds, something that 1st Army staffed very strictly forbade. The guns opened up their hellfire starting late on the 25th of September, and in the roar of the rolling barrage that began at 0530, the doughboys of the division went up and over the top. The division would be advancing with the 39th Infantry Regiment on the left and the 47th Infantry on the right. They advanced through the enveloping and thick fog into Forge's Creek, now a bone and barbed wire-filled swamp thanks to four years of artillery shelling. This would be near impassable terrain with the recent rains, but U.S. Army engineers had worked through the night to lay bridges and fascines and lanes through the swamp. The doughboys now ran roughshod over these bridges as they headed into Bezas Wood, which was part of the Wiesenschlenken line. Those Germans who had survived the punishing bombardment here quickly surrendered. The doughboys swept on into the Hagen line, which fell almost as rapidly as that first line had. Four hours after the American attack had begun, the German third line had been breached. The Etzel line had been breached on a front-line trace between Montfaucon and the village of Cessarge. The Germans on Montfaucon, aware of the threat to their southeast, turned their guns on the doughboys of the 4th Division. The 39th Infantry on the left and thus closer to the dominating hill, began to take heavy fire. Its men went to ground as quickly as they could, and casualties began to climb as bullets and shells found their American targets. 
on the division's right flank, men of the 47th Infantry made their way into the village of Cuisi. Heavy fighting broke out as the Americans worked to clear the buildings of any Germans. Machine gun nests within and around the village had to be cleared one by one. What was left of Cuisi was taken by the Americans within a couple of hours, and several machine guns and a good number of Germans were captured. The advance now moved north to Setsars, which was captured by 1230, along with 36 guns and 1,700 German POWs. With the 39th Infantry and the 79th Division struggling to the left, the doughboys of the 47th Infantry dug in where they were southeast of Nantiwa village now, now past Montfaucon, and in a position where that hill could be outflanked. From his position in the northern edge of the Bois de Sassage, Major J.A. Stevens of the 47th Infantry assessed the situation ahead of him. German resistance had crumbled, as evidenced by the number of guns and troops just taken. Directly in front, he was told, there were no Bosch troops. And in Antiwa village, there were few German troops. A flank attack, now would seize Nantiwa and cut off the garrison and Montfaucon. The only problem was that Nantiwa lay within the 79th Division sector boundaries, and Stevens had no authorization to cross the lines and attack, even though the situation was calling for it. Communications in 1918 simply couldn't connect frontline troops with headquarters fast enough and the AEF command staff wanted to keep sector boundaries strict in order to make the operations as simple as possible for their barely trained troops. So Major Stevens and his men sat and watched as German reinforcements began to flood into the front to his north and into Nantiwa village. By 4 p.m., the opportunity to attack this village was gone. It was buzzing with Germans by then. But new orders to attack did come in that evening at 5.30 p.m., and a renewed American infantry attack was launched with no artillery support. This lack of artillery is going to become a sadly well-known part of our story, as this practice was set to continue. As the wave of doughboys came at them, the Germans opened up with their machine guns. American ranks fell and great gaps appeared in their lines. The attack went nowhere, and the men of the U.S. 4th had to dig in where they were and face an uncomfortable night of exhaustion, digging, and shelling. The remaining men of the 4th Division dug in where they were, having advanced up to 1,500 meters that day. To the 4th Division's right were the men of the 80th Blue Ridge Division, 3rd Corps' only division that hadn't seen combat to date. The 80th was made up of men from Virginia, West Virginia, and Western Pennsylvania. The division was commanded by Major General Edelbert Cronkite, a career army officer whose branch was the artillery. Despite its being untested in the crucible of combat up until now, the men of the 80th considered themselves a crack outfit. These were country boys who'd grown up hunting in the woods. They'd do just fine once they got a crack at Kaiser Bill and toot sweet. The objectives of the 80th were to push into Forest Creek, attack the ruins of Betancourt, 
and then continue advancing until reaching the core objective line at Brieux. The 80th would be attacking on a 2,000-meter-wide attack front with the 320th Infantry on the left and the 319th Infantry on the right. The 315th Machine Gun Battalion would be in support. The men of the 317th Infantry, 318th Infantry, and the 313th Machine Gun Battalion were behind in reserve. Facing the 80th Division, as well as the 33rd Division to the right, was the German 7th Reserve Division. In the fog, that 26th morning of September 1918, the Blue Ridge Doughboys were up and over the top. Like the men of the 4th Division, they too had to get through the swamp that was Forest Creek. They rushed past Betoncourt, of which one doughboy said, quote, There wasn't enough of that town standing to shelter a pair of field mice. It was flat. End quote. Once out of the swampy ground, the doughboys kept pushing forward for the next two miles. The Germans in front of them largely melted away. Some of the doughboys took pot shots at the retreating Germans. Others went souvenir hunting amongst the abandoned gear and corpses as the sense of danger receded. Some unit cohesion was lost as a result from the lingering fog, but especially due to the search for German gear. Like we have discussed before, it all changed when that thick fog burned off in the late morning. From the Bois de Forge up ahead, German machine guns lit up any doughboys they found standing in the open. Americans began to fall or scramble for cover. With the fog clear, German airplanes appeared, and these now came in low to strafe the doughboys with their machine guns. Artillery from German batteries on the right bank of the Meuse screamed in towards the Appalachian men. Pennsylvania and Virginia boys now headed into the bois woods to clear them and a sharp firefight ensued. It came down to mortar teams plastering the German lines and infantrymen with rifle grenades clearing out the machine gun nests. Shortly after the wood was cleared, the Germans mounted a fierce counterattack, but by now men of the 315th Machine Gun Battalion had arrived on scene. The American machine gunners slaughtered the enemy infantry, and the attack failed. By dusk, the men of the 80th had pushed forward four miles to just south of the village of Danivou, close to the left bank of the Meuse. Despite this considerable advance, the division was still behind the 4th Division on its left and the 33rd Division on its right. The attack had to continue. A ridgeline past Danivou had to be secured. The ridge was taken by doughboys who by now were exhausted. Some of these men hadn't slept in well over two days due to pre-battle preparations. By late that night, the Blue Ridge men had established a line that ran north of Danivaux near the Meuse, which then ran west but dipped into the southern half of the Bois de Setsars, another wood, whose responsibility the 80th Division shared with the 4th Division. There were gaps between the 80th and the 4th Divisions, as well as gaps between the 80th and the 33rd on the right. Overwatch positions had been established over the section of the Meuse around Danivaux. Overall, the Blue Ridge boys had acquitted themselves successfully during their first trial by fire. 
We come now to the ninth American division that took part in the first day of the Meuse-Argonne battle, and that is, of course, the 33rd. Nicknamed the Prairie Division, the 33rd had its ranks filled by Midwestern farm boys and workers from Chicago's urban jungle. A former Illinois National Guard unit federalized for the war, the 129th and 130th Infantry Regiments had the farm boys. The 131st and the 132nd Infantry Regiments had the working class guys from Chi-Town. The 33rd was commanded by Major General George Bell, Jr., a man whose KFC Colonel Sanders facial hair would have made him another face in the crowd during the Civil War a half-century back. Major General Bell was known to be an exacting inspector, so standards were high in his division. The 33rd had also seen some combat with the Australians at Amel and on the Somme with the British during the summer just past. Its objectives were to break through three enemy lines and reach Donnevoo, much like the 80th to their left. On their way there, they were to clear the Bois de Forge on the other side of Forge Creek, then the hamlets of Driancourt and Gercourt. The 33rd would be executing this attack differently in that Major General Bell wanted his men to conduct a turning maneuver that would have them attacking their objectives from the west and unexpected outflanking. The Doughboys would also be attacking in small groups, as had been suggested by their veteran French liaison officers. It was a wise move, as the Bois de Forge had been strongly fortified. Along its southern edge ran trenches of the Wiesenschlenken line, and along the northern edge of the wood ran trenches of the Hagen line. The German positions were also being supported by friendly artillery batteries on the other side of the Meuse, which had already been plastering the men of the 80th Division that day. At 0530, under the roar and flashes of the guns, the doughboys of the Prairie Division set off and into Forge Creek, that artillery-plowed swamp the French had said was impassable. However, upon hearing this term impassable, the men of the U.S. 108th Engineers set to work to disprove this belief. In the days before the 26th of September, the engineers of the 108th assembled 12,000 fascines and wooden walkways that would turn the former creek into a cakewalk. Advancing slowly into the swamp in the thick fog, the men were quickly outpaced by the rolling barrage of artillery up ahead. The fog led some men astray, loosening unit cohesion. In his book, Thunder in the Argonne, Douglas Mastriano writes that the men of the 33rd Division attacked with skill that day, and that both junior officers and soldiers showed initiative. The Prairie Doughboys also listened to their French liaison officers, who strongly suggested that the Americans should be attacking the enemy in small groups that rushed forward in mutual support. Cover and move. In today's military, this is basic stuff. But a century ago, it was just beginning to be absorbed by the American expeditionary force. The Germans here had not been expecting an attack through the swamp, so the fortified lines had been lightly manned. It wasn't a stroll in the park, however, and there were still several of the enemy who put up a fight. 
and the Bois de Fours, the men of E Company, 132nd Infantry, charged into the battered wood. These men were led by two men who were about to do extraordinary things. Captain George Mallon, an Irish street tough from Chicago, and First Sergeant Sidney Gumperts, a Jewish man whose roots went back to the California gold rush. To attest to the get-after-it mentality of the 132nd Infantry, it bears telling that the regimental chaplain himself went into the attack with a Colt 45 in each hand. Like, for real. In the fog, Captain Mallon and First Sergeant Gumperts became separated from each other. Mallon had nine men with him, and he continued his mission. Together, he and his group took out several German machine gun nests and kept pressing forward until they reached a clearing in the woods where sat a German artillery battery. The German gunners were too busy putting out rounds to notice the Americans were on them. Mallon ordered a rush towards the enemy and the guns. The captain fired his pistol until he ran out of ammunition. And when this happened, Mallon was so close to the enemy that he could fall back to what he knew best. He dropped his pistol and began punching Germans out like he was back on his block. The remaining Germans were so shocked by the sudden violence Mallon and his men unleashed that they surrendered. This action was later explained with the following statement. Quote, Captain Mallon, in capturing the battery, had used his own unusual and peculiar method. He had swung his right and captured the battery with his fist. End quote. That statement would be heard later when George Mallon was awarded the Medal of Honor. First Sergeant Gumperts, having been separated from Mallon, led a group of 50 men into the Bois de Forge as well. After clearing some trenches and capturing a large group of Germans, Gumperts and his men walked into a wall of machine gun fire in the shattered woods. Taking two men with him, Gumperts charged the machine gun nest directly. Together, the three Americans shot up the German gun crew and captured more men who were nearby. The advance continued, and the Americans ran into another enemy machine gun team. This time, Gumpert's two volunteers were killed by an artillery shell that knocked the first sergeant himself to the ground. Gumpert's laid eyes on the enemy gunners up ahead, and he took action. He tossed a grenade and charged the Germans. Reaching them before they could recover from the grenade blast, Top Gumpert's shot and killed two men right away. The rest, a total of 16 men manning two machine guns, surrendered to this American maniac who had just rushed them all alone. The first sergeant wasn't done yet, either. Shortly afterwards, he charged the bunker that had pinned down his men. Gumpert's charged, threw a grenade into the firing slit, and killed every German soldier inside the bunker. They then faced snipers and artillery, but the first sergeant brought his men through it all into a small German camp staffed by cooks. Here, the Germans gave no fight at all, and after a solid morning's work, First Sergeant Sidney Gumpertz had himself a bowl of German soup and then lit up a liberated German cigar. Shortly after that, Gumpertz and his men walked into a clearing where Captain Mallon was found standing over a German officer he'd just knocked out. First Sergeant Sidney Gumpertz would also be awarded 
the Medal of Honor. With the Bois de Fours secure, the remains of Fours village itself were taken by noon. And along with a pile of artillery battered bricks, the Prairie Division men took 1,400 Germans prisoner, as well as a stockpile of supplies that the German army couldn't afford to lose. The Germans here were largely from Alsace, one of the two provinces wrenched away from France at the end of the Franco-Prussian War. The Alsatians had no fight left in them. Hell, they weren't really even Germans at all. Hands shot up in the air almost immediately, with the desperate cry of Kamerad ringing out. The 33rd Division went on to be the only American division that met all of its objectives, and the only division that met all of its objectives on time. They largely came online with the 80th Division on their left, and then oriented towards the Meurs to provide overwatch. Despite a well-executed advance, the men of the Prairie Division would now be stuck on this frontline trace for the next four days. Across the Meuse, on the old killing fields of Verdun, the French 17th Corps launched its supporting attack. The French here thoroughly soaked the enemy lines with heavy artillery for hours. When the barrage lifted, French Praloos went into action behind a combined infantry tank assault that targeted the Bois de Menu, Dieppe, Côte 345, Anglemont Farm, and Brabant-sur-Meuse. Facing the brunt of the French attack here was the German 33rd Division, sitting in shell holes and trenches in the lunar hellscape that was the Verdun battlefield. The French came on with a purpose, and a German survivor later recalled, quote, This probably was the most terrifying moment that resulted in the complete collapse of the regiment. There were bloody casualties with most of our men falling into the hands of the enemy. The leadership of two companies, as well as the unit's baggage and supplies, fell into the enemy's hands. Of the second battalion, only Leutnant Lager was saved. End quote. The German 33rd Division was shattered by the attack, and the French carefully maintained contact with the American 33rd Division's flank to their left. At the end of the day, Lieutenant General Robert Bullard's 3rd Corps had made a strong advance on the right flank of the American attack that day. The 4th Division had made a multiple-kilometer advance almost as deep as the 91st Division's advance on the other side of Montfaucon, although the 4th had let a critical opportunity slip away by not enveloping Montfaucon while the Germans were in disarray. The 80th Division had performed solidly, and it was north of Dunningvaux village, which was very close to the core objective. The Blue Ridge soldiers had also seized part of the Meuse Railway, making life that much more difficult for the Germans. The U.S. 33rd Division, as we just saw, met its objectives and met them on time. The French 17th Corps' supporting attack across the Meuse had also been a success. On the other side of the line, the German army was reeling from these blows. But General Max von Galwitz was already moving more men into the area, and his brilliant mind was already at work. Von Galwitz was a firefighter, 
and he was going to do his damnedest to put this American started fire out. Okay, so we've now covered the AEF First Army's attacks on the first day of the Meuse-Argonne, as well as the French 17th Corps' support on the right. Next episode, we're going back to the left, the far left, to visit the French 4th Army. On the U.S. 77th Division's left flank, the French also launched a supporting attack on a village named Binarville. Conducting the attack were African-American troops of the 368th Infantry Regiment, men who had been transferred from the AEF to the French when the latter asked for soldiers to supplement their ranks. Next time, we'll be pointing our maps at Binarville Village. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or get at me on the Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos, and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.